Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today, again, is David Barnett. I say again because he's actually my first repeat guest, so I'm very excited to have him back on the show. David, welcome back. Hey, Henry. Thanks for inviting me again. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. We're going to dive into a very important topic of um, preparing to sell our business. For our listeners, you you may recall David was on our show previously. And if you haven't listened to that previous episode, I definitely recommend it. That was back on episode 99 of The How of Business. But let me give you a quick uh, bio on David. And then if you want to hear his journey, which was very interesting, go back and listen to episode 99. Uh, David is an entrepreneur, an author, consultant, a real estate investor, and a mentor who is an expert in the areas of buying, selling, financing, and planning for small businesses. After a successful sales career, he started his first business in 2005 and sold that business in 2006. He has also uh, previously been a business broker, so he has a lot of experience there. One of his latest books is How to Sell My Own Business, and it became a bestseller under Amazon's entrepreneurship category in its first month of release. Uh, You can find all about uh, his current business ventures and the services that he offers his clients, and we'll talk talk rather a little bit about that in today's episode, but you can go to davidcbarnett.com and howtosellmyownbusiness.com, and you can find those links and other links that we will talk about on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. David, you're still in New Brunswick, Canada, is that right? Yes, I am, and it's it's starting to okay. get a little bit chilly here, so I'm so I'm growing my winter beard, try to keep my face there you from go. freezing. I bet. <laughs> I bet it is. Well, great. Uh, so once again, uh, if you want to listen to David's previous episode, we chatted about his entrepreneurial journey and about buying a business. That was the focus in that episode. That was episode 99 of the How of Business. Today, in today's episode, we're going to jump right into it and talk about his tremendous insights, advice, tips, experiences on how to sell your small business. So once again, David Barnett, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Henry. All right. So this is exciting. This is a topic I wanted to get into in the previous episode, but it was so fascinating going through your personal journey. And we talked a lot about about, uh, buying a business. So selling a business. I want to start with just the higher level concept that you also talk about. And that for me, I've really started to understand over the last few years. I used to look at a business as I'd start a business and run it forever and maybe pass it on to my kids or what, and reinvesting all my money into that business and growing, growing, growing. And I never really understood the importance of understanding or at least looking at and considering my exit strategy from the beginning. So I'd like to get your thoughts and start there, the conversation about why it's so important to always consider an exit strategy, even as you're starting or buying a new business. Yeah, sure, Henry. Um, Basically, uh, there's two important ideas to get across. Number one, when when most people get into business, they are seeking that income. 
they either are leaving a job they didn't like, or they don't have a job, they need an income. And people are so focused on the starting of the business to get that income. And then when they get that income, there's a sigh of relief, and then the head goes down and you start to work hard, sometimes for years. And the reason why it's important to think about the day you're going to want to get out of your business is because the idea of what is going to happen will shape your decisions day to day. So, so let me give you an example. Um, if you think that you might be selling your business one day and you need to acquire some capital equipment, some machinery or, or what have you, then when you go shopping for financing, either a loan or some kind of lease opportunity, because you're thinking about selling your business, you might ask a very important question when you're, when you're looking for financing, you might say, Hey, um, will this loan become assumable if I ever sell the business? And all of a sudden, the way that you look at different things is going to be framed in, in differently. Because when somebody comes to buy your business, of course, their challenge is going to be obtaining financing. And if you happen to have a bunch of loans and debts in your business that are assumable, then guess what? You're building in financing options for that potential buyer. And so knowing that you might be selling it is going to change the way you make decisions day to day. The other thing is that people will often personalize the business around themselves. They'll make it an extension of who they are. And it's important to continuously think about your business like an asset that is doing a specific job for you. You know, our, our cars move us around, our homes put a roof over our heads, but, and people know that these things are assets. And if, you know, the change comes in your, in your family relationships or something, maybe you have to sell the house, or if you decide to relocate, you're going to sell the house. And so, what tends to happen is people plan for things like retirement, but four out of the five top reasons that people put a small business up for sale are not planned for. It's divorce, burnout, poor health, and the need to relocate. And so when life events happen that come out of the blue that we're not expecting, we may suddenly have to put the business up for sale. And that's why we need to think about them like assets and treat them like they may have to be put up for sale at any time. And this, again, is going to change the way we behave and some of the decisions we make day to day. Yeah, great tips and great actionable takeaways there. I, I find it as I think that I know I look at myself back of 10 years ago and not having that vision. I think I was just simply delusional and thinking this will last forever. And you you iterated some of the reasons why that always doesn't happen including divorce. I mean, it could just be, it could be divorce between partners, right? I, I'm in business with partners and you never know where those relationships are going to end up. Somebody might want out, even if it's not me, or it could be me or it could be all of us. So there's so many reasons why we want to be prepared to exit as gracefully and as profitably as we can from our business. Hmm. The other thing that you helped me with in the last episode in thinking about that has been something I've come to understand better over the last couple of years as well, is that that whole notion related here of not necessarily reinvesting every dollar back into the business. And I think as you're pointing out, when we have this perspective that there likely will be an exit or we should plan for one regardless, it helps you look at that a little bit more objectively as to whether I put all my money back into my business or if I begin to diversify, enjoy some of those rewards and put those in other investments. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people out there will forego a fair market wage. They'll they'll 
think that they are reinvesting in the growth of their business. People like bankers will often advise business owners, you know, oh, pay down your debts, build your equity on your balance sheet and make your company stronger. And while it does make the company's balance sheet stronger, what it also does is reduces the risk of the bank. <laughs> so when when I'm talking with buyers and sellers, one of the things that I continuously reiterate is that in big businesses, right, in the big mega corporations, they're always asking themselves, how can we create the maximum cash flow with the least amount of investment? How can we have the least amount of our own money tied up in this and produce the maximum cash flow? And in small businesses, what tends to happen is people will borrow money. And when they have those debts in the beginning of the business, they have to run their ship very efficiently in order to make sure they can pay the bank and pay themselves and, and, and succeed. But then once those bank loans disappear, if they become paid off, then all of a sudden the banker's not at our heels all the time. And that's when I notice people will start to slack off. They'll start to put less effort into their business. They'll start to return fewer customer calls. They won't raise prices as often as they should. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is they end up in a position where if someone was going to buy the business, um, the cash flow that they have isn't sufficient to warrant the type of investment that a buyer would have to make to actually acquire the business. You know, especially if there's some big capital assets in there like real estate. And so I'm always telling people, we need to think about how can we preserve the cash flow and profits of the business with the least amount of our own money, which means if the banker isn't at our heels taking a payment every month, then we should be thinking about maximizing our own withdrawals from the business to get that cash out of the business into something else, whether it's in a you know traditional investment portfolio with an investment advisor or you know buying apartment buildings or whatever it is you're going to do. Because when we talk about an exit from a business, we don't necessarily always mean that it will be a sale. And so an exit from a business might arrive without a liquidity event. So think about all the businesses that are forced to close or, you know, they have to liquidate or some event happens outside their control, which basically puts them out of business. Those are all exits. And so we should be thinking about the different things that could happen. And the person who has been constantly taking money out of their business throughout their life, investing in other assets, if they lose the business, they haven't lost everything. Right. Right. And, right. and because they've got that return and, and hopefully maybe have gotten more than they put into it, but they, but they, they got money back out of it, even though now this asset has to come to end of life. Yeah, I'm always I'm always telling the same story of the the seafood restaurateur that I knew and he had invested everything into this restaurant and it was very successful and one year the city decided to do a complete renewal of water, sewer, streets and curbs and the whole infrastructure and they thought it would be easier for the city if they redid several streets at one in one summer. Yeah. And his restaurant was in the middle of that. Oh, and you know, so it had nothing to do with the menu, the pricing, his staff, everything he could control was fine, but customers literally couldn't get to his business for almost three months. And when they could, there were clouds of dust and noise and confusion and it killed his business and it was completely outside of his control. And and that's the kind of thing that, that we can't plan for, but we can always be thinking, 
what if something I'm not foreseeing happens? Am I going to end up okay? And it changes the way you manage your business yeah. when you have this idea in the back of your head. But, but here's the thing that, that I get challenged with and my clients do as well, David, is a lot of us are starting our small businesses by bootstrapping, by reinvesting those early profits, starting really small and growing. And it seems like we stay in that mode beyond what is necessary. And then it's combined with this notion that we always have to keep expanding and growing, expanding and growing, or we will die. So it's almost like those two things work against us as small business owners to convince us that all the money has to go back into the business. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. My thinking is that at some point you gotta you have to stop and think, is that really the best model for me and my business is to continuously try to expand or do I need to slow it down or reach some plateaus where I can start to reap some of those benefits and then grow in a different way? Because to your point, I could have, in the case of the restaurant owner, he may have spent the last five years growing, growing, expanding, putting money into the business, and then it's all gone. There's nothing to show for if I have that unplanned exit as you described. Well, if you, if you build a business to the point where it's profitable and you're making money, and you have a really solid plan for a change you want to make that's going to lead to more growth and more profit, well, then you start to use other people's capital. And, and this is one thing that small business people don't think of that, again, in the world of large enterprise, they do. In a big company, in a big Fortune 500 company, the most expensive capital they have is the equity. Because the shareholders demand a greater rate of return than the debt holders. Because in a liquidation, the debt holders get paid first and they're often secured against assets. So the equity holders have the greatest risk. They demand the greatest rate of return. Most small business people don't look at their own equity as an investor does. They don't demand a great rate of return from their equity. In fact, most small business people ignore their equity and, and are happy getting no return on it, which, which, which belies another issue is that a lot of small businesses are run by technicians instead of entrepreneurs. But if you were going to expand your business and you were accumulating equity, that would mean that you would have to be getting a higher and higher rate of return on that equity. Well, if your business is profitable, should you not be able to arrange more debt financing, right? And now we're talking about a bank lending you money and they want, you know, eight, nine, 10% interest. Your equity should be getting you 25, 30% rate of return. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Great perspective. All right. So when we get to choose our exit, it's maybe, well, it is harder because when it's chosen for us, we have no choice, but... I have found that that is one of the big challenges is because, of course, as we've touched on, we've invested all of ourselves into building this business. Perhaps it represents us. We built it. And now to think about exiting it is hard. So how do you help clients sometimes think through it's time to exit? And of course, there's a whole list of reasons why. But do you understand that that challenge of hmm. letting go is really hard? And it could be that, hey, you're foreseeing some changes in the market. It could be that I'm I'm not the person to take it to the next level. It could be that I'm bored. It could be that my kids don't want it. There could be a whole bunch of reasons. But how do you help people think through making that decision that it's time to exit? Well, as someone who's really thinking about their business like an asset, and they're thinking about this sort of jewel in their personal wealth formula, um, that person can really make a plan and really do well for themselves by making sure that they have successive years of growth in sales and profits 
and, and that the business is being run properly, very transparently by the book, you know, uh, very good record keeping, all that kind of thing. And, and they would be able to leave on a high note as far as maximizing the value of their business. Now, the reality though is, is that most small businesses sell for multiples that are quite low. And that's why people don't tend to build up a business to sell it because they need the income, right? And so when they're planning for a retirement, for example, if they can align increasing sales and profits year after year in conjunction with their target date for retirement, then they can do quite well because they're being motivated by the need to retire. But when most people see what their business is really worth, they go, geez, you know, Henry, if I just stayed here for another two or three years, I'd have the same money and I would still own the business, right? And so people often, they're not motivated by this cashing out. And the the stories we hear about the internet heroes from Silicon Valley that start a business in a garage and sell it for tens of millions of dollars, it's as rare as someone who's going to beat Mickey Mantle's record, right? It's, it's, It's the one in a million stories, and it's not the regular every day. What happens most often is people are running that business and they're earning the income and they need the income. And then a pressing personal concern arrives that causes them to want to sell. And so if they happen to be able to hang on and and work toward a retirement goal, they can lay the foundation to get the best price for their business. But when most people need to sell, it's because one of those personal needs that has come up. And so then, in fact, the whole question doesn't become about money or the price. It becomes about time. How can we now execute this transaction as fast as possible before these personal problems start to affect the business and erode the value? So, you know, I'll give you a quick example. Um, I'll often talk to people who are just completely burned out and they have no passion or desire left in their business whatsoever. And I'll ask them a question. I'll say, you know, when your cell phone rings, who are you more afraid of a customer or an employee? And, and, and they'll, they'll shudder and they'll just be like, oh my God, you can see through my mask, <laughs> you know? And, and it's because I've, I've personally experienced some of those things in, in past businesses where you're under all this pressure you don't want to deal with the problems. You just wish things would go away. And a person with that kind of attitude is not going to be pushing sales. They're not going to be giving the level of service they need to. Eventually, the sales will erode or the expenses will increase because you you don't want to spend the time to manage things and manage people. And the profitability will decline and the value of the business will start to fall. And so, so when those personal things happen, now it's about how can we get this done as fast as possible? And if you've been running your business with the idea that you might have to sell one day, it's going to be a lot easier and a lot quicker to execute that transaction than if you haven't. Because because then we have to apply all of these sort of band-aid fix-ups and employ all these stories often to explain what's going on in the business because, of course, the books don't look as good as they should and what ends up happening is while the business may be saleable, often it's not under terms that are favorable to the seller. Yeah, absolutely. It's forced and it's uh, it's interesting, right, David? And you talk about this, that when it comes to all the all of our other investments, typically, we would never 
allow ourselves knowingly to, to commit ourselves to an investment where we're locked in, where the liquidity is minimal or none, where you know it depended completely on us to continue the value of that asset. But yet we do that often with a small business, right? Because really often what we end up doing is creating just a lower paid job than we had before, as you have explained. Well, and, and, and again, to, to keep an eye on the rate of return, um, this is the one thing that I, I, when I'm working one-on-one with clients, um, and mentoring them through a, a systematization process, one of the things we do regularly is a normalization. So I don't care what they pay themselves. I want to know what it would cost them to hire someone to do that job. Right. Because that's what I want to benchmark them against. Yeah. And so if the company had to pay them the fair market wage of what it is that they do, now I want to know if there's any profit left after that. Because I want to know if we're actually talking about a business or a job or a hobby. And a hobby is when somebody works really hard and contributes free labor into something, right? And, and I'm, so these are the things I want to shed light on when I'm working with people, because I want to say, look, if we can't fix this and make it into a real business, then you're better off just going to get a job somewhere else. Yeah. Right. And in the um, businesses where I'm selling someone a low paying job, those, I'm not going to sell my business for much in that case, if at all, buyers are looking for those businesses that have that potential to generate income for me without me having to work at it uh, day in and day out, right? That's that's the ideally where you get the big multiples. Those buyers are looking exactly. for those things. Yeah. The, the, the businesses that are essentially jobs are bought by people who literally can't be employed and need to buy a job. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why we often find in certain business segments, you will have a lot, for example, of new immigrants who have a language barrier, right? Right. They, they may have skills and training that would make them very valuable, but they can't work in our society because they don't have that language skill, but they need money to feed their family. So that type of buyer would buy a business that is essentially a job just to get that income. Yeah. And I'm very familiar for those, you know, in the restaurant business that happens all the time, right? So then they'll work the restaurant and, and that's great. It's great for them. It's a great opportunity. But me as seller of that restaurant, if that's what I have to sell is something where you're going to have to work it, you, the new prospective buyer and your extended family are going to have to work it to make any money. then I'm not going to get much for that business. No, you're looking at what's what's the value of the stuff, really. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe that has some value because I negotiated an extension. You know, the equipment, maybe pennies on the dollar on that, and and then good luck getting much for my goodwill, right? Hmm. Let's dive a little deeper into what buyers are looking for. Buyers of businesses, of small businesses. We've been touching on some of these things, but tell me some of the other things that we haven't talked about yet that prospective buyers are looking for. Yeah, the number one thing that any buyer is looking for is cash flow. Um, they want to know when they put their money on the table, how much they're going to be getting every year. And they understand that the chance that your past performance will continue into the future is not certain. So there, there's a riskiness to this cash flow. It's not like a government bond, right? And so that riskiness varies by industry, and that's what's going to modify what people are willing to pay for that cash flow. But Traditionally, you know, the the buyer who is the reasonable buyer who has money saved, a good credit profile, and the skills, they're going to be looking for something that they can both work in, 
and earn themselves a fair wage and earn a return on the money that they're investing, as well as servicing debt, of course, that they have to take on to buy the business. So the, the business's cash flow has to be able to do those three things for the buyer. And, um, you know, the, so they need to see that the cash flow is there and then they need to understand that they're going to be able to run it. And so I often use the example of, you know, uh, let's say a construction business, let's say a roofing firm. And if you've got a small roofing contracting company and you're running a couple different crews, a couple different jobs at a time, um, and you're basically running around all day with your cell phone between building supply companies and job sites and taking calls from you know clients and meeting people at night and you're doing all this stuff and all of the systems processes are in your head with a couple of notes on paper for every job, then the only person who's going to be able to buy that business is someone with the exact same type of experience that you have. Because they're going to have to buy the business and they're going to have to already know how to run those sites and how to buy shingles and how to, you know, get them delivered on time and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So let me jump in here because two, there's a two huge points here going back to the cash flow. Yeah. And if I understand it correctly, what we're talking about there, because everybody has a different definition of these terms. So that's where I want to make sure we get some clarity here. Sure. Cash flow is, I'm going to look at that as a potential buyer after I have normalized what I'm going to pay myself as a salary, or if I'm going to hire a manager to run the particular business, what the going rate would be for that person. And after that, what is the business really generating in cash flow, right? That's what we mean by cash flow. There, there are two different measures of cash flow. Um, and so one is the EBITDA, the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And so that is what is the cash flow after a fair market wage for a manager? Exactly. I usually refer so to it as, you know, what's what's the distributable cash flow? So what after you've paid all your expenses, including someone to operate the place, what's left over? And that's what's distributable, right? right? And then the next level of cash flow with small businesses in particular is what we call the seller's discretionary earnings. All we do is take that EBITDA and we add back the fair market value of the of the manager because Oftentimes, that's going to be the owner. That might be the right? owner, right. So once we have that SDE cash flow, you know, let's say it's a hundred and fifty grand coming out of a business, the SDE, the buyer has to say, out of this money, I can feed my family, service my debts, and get a return on the cash I brought into the deal. And if he can't see that he can get all three of those things, he's not going to execute the deal. Right. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast, and I invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner, I understand the challenges you are experiencing, and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching session, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. What what I look at when I'm looking at a prospective business and I have in the past or I'm helping somebody else, I then look at that cash flow, that net cash flow, and then I look at a multiple of that and my cash investment into this business how many years will it take for me to get back that cash investment from from the cash flow, not not including 
the wage that I might pay myself, but from the cash flow, how long will it take me to recoup my cash investment in the business? And so that's a different ways of saying the multiple. And, and for me, my rule of thumb, there's no hard rule on this. My rule of thumb personally as an investor is between three to five years. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so you're looking at the the cash flow after the fair market wage? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So so you would be describing a multiple of EBITDA methodology, and, and that's the ballpark that a lot of them fall into, what you said, three to five years. Um, most small businesses, when, when, when I look at past sale transaction data, and I've got access to these databases because I work in this industry, um, what we're often looking at is multiples of the SDE. And so in in that vein, they go as low as one point, you know, as low as one or 1.2 up to a high of about 2.5, 2.7, depending on the industry. But but that would be the multiple with the owner's wage included. Right, right. right. And, and the reason why small businesses are, are valued on multiples of SDE is because quite often the buyers do have this mentality that they mix the investment return with the employment return. And, and that's just the standard that's evolved over time. Fair enough. All right, let's go back to then what you, as you called it, the ability to run it. And I think part of what you're talking about there that I've experienced directly as well, and we'll talk about an example in a moment, is I think you're talking about the systems that are in place that um, that show me as a potential buyer that, A, you're you're replaceable. You who have been running the business and handle everything and everything is in your head and everything runs through your personal cell phone. Am I going to be able to replicate that and continue to generate the revenues that you're generating? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a really great story because because the buyers, when they buy the business, they know that they're going to be dependent on some of the other people who are already in the business, some of the employees, for example. And I remember I had a meeting between a buyer and seller of a restaurant and the buyer said, I'm worried that some of the employees might leave. Well, can you give me any assurance that the employees will stick around for a long time? And the seller looked at him and said, how about this? I'll guarantee you they will all be gone within 12 months. And he said, turnover is a big part of this business. And so the buyer immediately was afraid. And then the seller said, here's how we handle it. And he said, we have all of these help wanted ads and I have a special method I've developed to determine, you know, how, if people are motivated or not. So he posts the ads online and people send an email. And the first thing he does is reply and says, that's great to meet you. Just give me a call on my cell phone. We'll set up a meeting, right? You know, only half the people will, right? And so he starts explaining this whole process that he has. And then once he's found the right person based on a criteria he's developed, which is on paper, he then has all the different roles in the business listed out with their individual tasks and what people do. And they correspond with checklists that are used every day in the business. So the person who opens a restaurant has a checklist of things to do. And the people in the back have a checklist and the people in the front have a checklist. And the person who locks the door at night has a checklist. And he showed that his training materials tied into those checklists. And so the buyer's fear was managed because he could see, wow, if I do buy this business, I don't need to be so worried about turnover because I'm going to learn a system that's been written down that will help me manage the problem of employee turnover. Yeah. And those kinds of systems can be applied in 
every part of any business. That's such a great example. Now what he did there is he gave the potential buyer a vision for and made them feel like, oh, I can do this. I can do that. You've laid it out for me. So so I get it now. I, I have a, a great example of business I sold several years ago, and I can assure you that one of the reasons, A, that we were able to sell it rather quickly and that we got a fair price and had multiple offers on it was in part because of the systems we had in place. And so everybody who came to look at it, who dug, you know, beyond the just preliminary, but people who were looking at it seriously commented on that that was going to make it so much easier for them, all of whom, by the way, except for one, had limited or no experience in this particular industry that the business was in. But they saw that as, okay, I can do that because he's already put these systems in place. Now, that wasn't the only factor. The fact that our financials were clean, the fact that it was a profitable business, those are all, of course, primary. But the systems that I had in place, fully documented, like you said, a checklist, an operations manual, a front desk manual, how we did everything, that was key. That was a key selling point. The 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 keys to selling a business quickly and for a reasonable price are number one, increase the potential market by making it easier for more people to run. So like you said, there are more potential buyers. And then the second axis is the amount of down payment required. So if we can make it, if we can arrange things so that our potential buyer only needs a smaller amount of money, you know, if a buyer could come to the table with 70 or hundred grand versus three or 400,000, then there will be more of them because more people have that kind of money. And so oftentimes back when I was a broker and and today when I work with sellers, um, we will strategize how we can make the business more affordable to people with less money. And oftentimes that will mean separating different parts of the business or separating certain assets. So selling the business maybe while retaining the real estate and then the seller becomes a landlord. And once that buyer has run the business for a couple of years and has their own financial statements demonstrating that they know how to run the business, buying the building is going to be easy because any bank will make that loan, Mm -hmm. right? To a proven operator who's got a history of success, who can say, look, Mr. Banker, the cash flow is already there. I'm paying it in rent today. And instead it will be a mortgage payment to you, right? And so, so that's what you have to do. You have to make it so that you have more buyers available, which is where the systematization part comes in. And then you have to make it more affordable, which is, you know, in, in part, some other strategies are applied so that somebody can come in with the least amount of down payment. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Uh, what are your thoughts, David, on seller financing and offering that? Um, you know, I have had a hand in... 36 deals while I was a broker. And since I have become a consultant, a private transaction advisor, I call myself, uh, probably almost 200 more deals. And there has only been one deal that's been a cash deal. Seller financing is absolutely critical for both parties. It's critical for the buyer because they often can't get the funds and they're fearful that if they put their cash down on closing day, that if there was anything that was fraudulent or misrepresented, they now no longer have recourse. You know, suing someone over something is, is, is not recourse. It's another round of pain, right? You know, the expense of lawyers and the expense of court, etc. The sellers 
if they want to get a fair price for their business, they have to realize that the buyer has a problem getting financing. You know, car dealers know that if they want to sell $40,000 cars, they have to have financing programs ready, right? They have to solve the financing problem for their buyers. The same thing goes with businesses. If you're going to be selling a business, which is a very expensive thing that is very risky, the buyers are going to have a financing problem. And if you are willing to solve that problem for them, it means you're going to sell it for a higher price. And here are the other things people don't often think about because they just, they think about collecting. That's it. But here are the other things. Vendor financing notes are usually on terms that are much better than any other kind of investment you can find, right? I've seen seller notes written at interest rates that you can't get from any bank, right? right? And so you're going to earn a higher rate of return investing in something you understand. And number two, if the buyer ends up failing, you have an opportunity to foreclose and get the business back. Right, but let's talk about that, David, because that's, that's of course, my biggest fear, and for a lot of people, is, but am I going to get a business back that has been run into the ground? Especially if it's a business that that doesn't have a lot of assets that are going to retain value. What about if they ruin the business and now what I take over is not the business I sold them? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a valid concern. The important point is that it, there's no obligation for you to take over the business. It's an option, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's up to you to decide if the business is salvageable. But here's the thing that I've observed so many times is when a seller does seller financing, the lines of communication tend to stay open with the buyer because the seller wants the cash. And in order to get the cash, the buyer has to be successful. And of course the buyer wants to be successful. And what I see over and over and over again is the buyers and sellers actually develop relationships through doing these deals and things don't usually have an opportunity to get so bad before the seller is made aware because the buyer goes looking for help because they want to save their investment. You know, that buyer has borrowed money from the bank. Usually they've borrowed against their home. They put their personal savings in. They might have money from family and friends. You know, they do not want to fail. And so they're highly motivated to make it work. Um, There's one case that I worked on. It was a deal where I did the deal. I sold the business The buyer and the seller called me after about three years because the buyer was having a problem. And the problem wasn't the way he was managing the business. The problem was that um, the the industry was in a decline. Like they had had a slump. Sales were down 20 to 25% from the year before. Well, by the time they called me to talk about the problem, the the seller had already been on the scene for eight months. Because as soon as the sales started to slip, the buyer was on the phone to him. What am I doing wrong? What, what should I be doing? Did this ever happen to you? And so the seller was already coming by offering his advice and giving, and, and, and he was at a loss. He's like, look, the, the people just aren't buying. And they were selling, um, um, renovation supplies and there was a slump in build and renovation. So it had more to do with banking and finance and the overall economy than it had to do with the way they were running their business. And, and so, um, It's very rare, actually, that a buyer will simply run something into the ground and not try everything they can to make it succeed. 
And and if you, like you said, you can keep that communication, you will see the signals. I mean, you you you've lived that business. You'll you'll see it even from afar if that's the case that something's going on, and so it's an opportunity to intercede earlier than later. All right, so I've had go ahead, sorry. Henry just oh, to yeah. interrupt. I've had um, I've had deals before where people, for example, have sold a restaurant and. The one of the terms they'll put in the vendor note is that they want the financial statements quarterly. And the sellers have picked up the phone and called the buyers and said things like, your cost of sales are up 3%. Someone's stealing from you. Mm-hmm. Right? And and that's the experience that they have helping that buyer notice things that they may not be aware of. And that's a great tactical tip to ask for that. And it's not an unreasonable ask, especially because the buyer is going to be more than accommodating when you're offering seller financing. And so those types of stipulations or conditions are more than acceptable and actually recommended. Well, don't forget, the seller then becomes a creditor, right? And and so the bank, if they make a loan, they're going to want financial statements, right? And so there's no reason that a seller shouldn't ask for the same kind of level of information. All right. Uh, talk to me about your thoughts on whether I need to use a broker or not. Yeah, sure. I, I, I wrote a book, obviously we've, we've mentioned it before, called How to Sell My Own Business. And the first half of the book is actually on how to hire the right business broker. The business of selling businesses is different than the business that you run. And so for someone who's got a really great business with really great profits, it may make perfectly good sense for you to focus on running your business and have a professional come and sell it for you. The problem is in the world of business brokerage, finding the right qualified broker who's going to be able to help you. Business brokerage tends to have high rates of commission. And the reason that it does is because these are, you know, Qualified brokers are highly trained people with a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge. They only get paid typically for the businesses that sell. And so they charge high rates of commission because they have to be compensated for all the time they spend on businesses that don't sell. Okay. So um, that high rate of commission attracts people into the industry that aren't necessarily the people you want to work with. I was just on the phone yesterday with two clients of mine from from the South, and they sent me a business profile that was provided to them by a broker. And in the business profile, um, number one, there was no balance sheet, so we had no view as to the operating capital required in the business. Number two, the SDE and the EBITDA were listed at the same figure, meaning the broker didn't understand the difference between those two levels of cash flow that we just discussed. Number three, it said that inventory was included in the purchase price, yet there was no mention anywhere as to what that inventory was or how much it was worth, right? And so it was one flag after another. And then when we got to the normalization and the addbacks, there were just complete line items were added back, it seemed, with no thought into how this business functions because the business is a, is a selling agency and they have commissioned salespeople, but all of the vehicle expenses and travel and entertainment expenses were added back. And I said, that doesn't make sense. If you're going to have salespeople circulating, visiting customers, then obviously there's a T&E and travel expense, right? And so by the time we got through it, we knew that we really couldn't rely on the document in any way. It didn't give us the information we needed 
at all to make an uh, to make an offer certainly, but to even know if the business was worth pursuing. And the poor seller doesn't know that this is the kind of representation he's getting. Yeah, if he had if he hadn't come to you about it, he's working. They wouldn't know, right? They would not. Yeah, he thinks he's working with a broker who's going to sell his business, and that broker is not going to sell any businesses. So, give me one or two questions. There's a lot more to it, but just one or two questions that come to mind that I should ask a prospective business broker. Yeah, the, the the first one would be, can you give me the names of some businesses that you've sold? I'd like to talk with some past clients. And the second question would be, how long have you been doing this and where did you learn how to do it? Right. Um, so many times we go, we go to professional type people in the world and we don't challenge them the way we challenge, you know, tradesmen. Right. Right. And, and you need to, even lawyers and accountants, you know, most accountants spend their time preparing tax returns and financial statements. Very few of them, you know, work on the due diligence process in acquiring a small business. So you have to ask if they have experience in that and ask them for references. Lawyers as well. You know, many of them practice real estate or family law, but many generalists will say, yeah, I'll help you buy a business, but you don't want that person. You want a person who has helped people buy and sell many businesses because you need the experience of someone who has seen trouble before and is going to help you avoid it or at least identify it and shine a light on it. Agreed. All right. Great tips. Uh, Before we move on here then on this topic, I I definitely, I've done both. I've sold businesses with and without a broker, but to our listeners, Mm -hmm. uh, both David and I certainly recommend that before you do anything like this, you consult with your CPA and possibly in, typically your attorney as well. So get some guidance and advice, legal and tax advice before you go do it, even if you do it yourself. Now in the book, the second half where I talk about doing it yourself, what what I do is I itemize the process and I show people that even if they're going to do it on their own, here are the key things that you need a qualified person to do for you. So for example, the valuation. If you don't price a business right, you will scare off the reasonable buyer. It's it's not like a house where you can just say, oh, I'll ask a couple hundred grand extra, and if I have to come down, I will, right? There are buyers right now out there looking for your business. The problem is there might only be two or three of them in your area. And if you put your business up for sale and you overprice it by you know a big margin, What they're going to do, because they know what businesses like yours are selling for, they're going to look at you and go, oh, I can't talk to this guy. His expectations are totally out of whack. It'll be a waste of my time. And you'll miss the chance to have a conversation with the person who actually has the experience, the desire, the money, and the credit to buy the business. Agreed. And who you won't scare away are the tire kickers or the people who don't know anything who are just going to waste your time. So pricing the business right is critical from the beginning and packaging it correctly is critical. And so in in the book, I talk about where you need other people to help you, what those other people look like, how much it should cost, and 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 how that's going to help you succeed in the end. Yeah. And of course, then you need legal services to draft the purchase agreement and to review it and all of that mm-hmm. good stuff. So that's critical. All yeah. right. So we'll start to wrap it up here, David, because we could go on forever on this topic as we have been doing, which is fantastic. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to need another hour to get you back on the show again. But uh, we've touched on it, but summarize for us the services that you offer your clients. 
Yeah, sure. I, I help people buy and sell businesses. And, and when it comes to selling, I've basically broken down the process of selling into five stages. The first stage is education. So things like my books, I have online classes that people can take where they can learn about the process, learn to look at their business through the eyes of a buyer. The second thing that I do is evaluation. So I show people what their business is likely going to sell for under what terms. Then there's the packaging, which I do for people. And I also manage online confidential advertising for people. So you don't want people to find out that your business is for sale. So right now I'm managing people's advertising all over the continent who have businesses for sale. And when people make inquiries, the inquiries come to me and I get the NDAs put into place before the buyer and seller talk to each other. So the sellers aren't wasting their time with all these people who are submitting inquiries but aren't even serious enough to complete an NDA. And then the last stage is the coaching. So I coach people through the process to help guide them and then get them into the hands of the right attorney and accountant at the end so we can do the closing. So do you also consider yourself a, a business broker or a business consultant? Is that a title that you, you take on? No, I'm not a broker and here's why. A broker has an agency role. So a broker actually represents the interest of a party to the transaction. And most of my clients don't want the other party knowing that I'm working with them. And, and so the sellers that I work with deal directly with the buyers and then come back to me and we discuss what happened in the meeting, what happened in the conversation, and then I advise them on what they should be doing next. Yeah. So you play an advisory, you obviously, obviously we talked about the education component the coaching component, the review and advisory component, uh, but the buyer and the seller interact directly or perhaps through a broker. Yeah, well, I, I tend to work with uh, buyers sometimes when there's a broker involved who's acting for the seller. Um, and sometimes um, I actually do get calls by people from people who are working with a broker who will send me the material that the broker's produced and ask me to review it just because they're not 100% sure if they've got the right person. Yeah, it's like that, the example you gave uh, earlier. Um, so that's another review process. Okay, so uh, you various books, but the books we the book in particular that we've been referring to often is "Build a Business That People Will Want to Buy," and you can find a link to that. That's my online that's, course about systematizing yeah, okay, businesses. Thank you. And then we've got a free download offer right on uh, another downloadable book, ebook, uh, whatever you want to call it. So tell us about that. That's the twelve things to do before you consider selling your business. Yeah, if people go over to my website, howtosellmyownbusiness.com, um, they can, there's a little video there where I introduce people to my five stages, but one of the education components is a free download. It's the 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. And it helps you take a look at the 12 top things that I often see are shortcomings when people want to sell their business. And it, under each one, I give some advice if you're planning to sell your business in the next 12 months or if you have longer and things you can do to help address those 12 big concerns. All right. Speaking of books, besides yours, is there a book recently that you've read uh, that you would recommend? Yeah, I, I read the book Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It was really interesting um, because I, I was looking at his examples as I was reading through the books and I was recalling all of these examples that I've lived through in different negotiations realizing, you know, that the guy knows what he's talking about. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator 
who now teaches negotiation in the in the business realm, and he talks about the problems with traditional business negotiation thought. And uh, I found it to be a very interesting book. Great recommendation. We'll have a link to it as well as to your book and the free download. You can find all of that on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. All right, we'll wrap it up here. Last two questions. First is this final thought, piece of advice, parting piece of advice, especially on this topic that we dove into today on preparing a business for sale. Anything I didn't ask you about or that comes to mind that you want to end it with? Uh, No, just simply that um, for most people, when they go to sell a business, it's the time rather than the money that becomes the chief concern because it's, it's 80% of the time. It's one of these unforeseen personal life things that happens to people. And so if you're going to have to sell your business quickly one day, it's best to run it in a fashion that makes it easier to sell. Well said. All right. And tell us again where you'd like us to go online to find out more about you and your business. Yeah. Well, the main place for me is davidcbarnett.com. That's my blog site. There's about 300 blog posts. I've got over 250 videos right now. People can sign up for my email list if they wish. Every week I issue a new video, which is based on questions submitted by people or interactions with clients. And so there's a depth of knowledge there that's that's all there for free. So if you're interested in buying, selling, managing, financing, small businesses, come on over to the site, take a look. And uh, of course, you'll find my online courses and, and links to different books that I've written. There are seven books now on Amazon. And um, yeah, my, my mission really, Henry, is just to help people avoid bad deals. The, the worst thing that I've ever seen happen to anyone is is people end up with a with a sour deal just because they didn't know any better. And it happens with buyers and it happens with sellers too. Um, the best example I can bring up with sellers is someone who... Uh, I've had many now who've come to me looking for help to sell their business. And when I do the evaluation and come back with um, a likely scenario for the purchase, they then tell me that they've actually already received and declined a similar offer. And so again, the problem is that they didn't know. Yeah. Great advice. And it goes back to your first step in the process, which is education. I watch your videos all the time. A lot of great free content there, folks. So there's no excuse for not educating ourselves, not, and like you said, not when the crisis uh, presents itself and now the time is of the essence, but as we are building and planning and, and, and growing our business, we need to educate ourselves on this topic of how we will exit because there will be an exit. Fantastic. Um, there's a reason why I had you back on, David. Thank you so much again for, first of all, indulging us with uh, all of your time and sharing your knowledge and experience. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, Henry, I always enjoy it. I look forward to coming back again sometime. Appreciate that. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest again was David Barnett. Thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find our show on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our website at thehowofbusiness.com. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? 
Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.